we have this Karuna, Karuna, universal Karuna experience. And the Karuna virus is not just a physical virus. We're beginning to see that it has implications for the mental states of many people. Historically, there's been a pandemic every hundred years. That includes the Black Plague, the Spanish flu. It was a kind of every century, there's been a pandemic. So why would we be exempt? But instead of just the five sense doors in the mind as our media, we have many other media, artificial media, powerful media that connect human beings to each other. And they don't follow sila. These media follow whatever they want. But we human beings follow a certain level of virtue, a certain standard of virtue for the most part, which governs the way we use our media. There's no ethical hierarchy or board of directors of social media. So it, it's wild and it's contagious because defilements, just like joy is contagious, so is anger. Maybe anger is more contagious, I'm not sure. It's powerful and it's, it's spreading in subtle and also in very blatant ways. The corona itself is blind. It doesn't choose, it just spreads. And defilements can be blind like that too, they just spread. So the natural result of the corona is suffering. The spread of a virus naturally results in suffering. But the natural result of suffering is karuna, compassion. The natural result is compassion. When you see suffering, many of you expressed that you had this natural impulse or this spontaneous arising of compassion. And that, that is probably because of a certain level of sensitivity, openness, purity of heart that already exists in you or has been cultivated in you from years and years of practice, from reading Dhamma, practicing Dhamma, understanding Dhamma, or from past life development of virtue. So a natural result of suffering is karuna. I would guess that in this world, in this day and age, there are more expressions of compassion than there have ever been. Because there's destruction of life, of health, of well-being, of productivity, Human connection has been 
heavily impacted. But on the other hand, there has been such an outpouring of compassion and such almost unimaginable sacrifice on the part of medical people, people working on buses, transport systems, in all kinds of public services, serving the public during the two years of the pandemic at a great cost to themselves, but also out of compassion, wanting to do some good, to bring forth something to help people through this time. It's remarkable. We should also pay attention to that and be aware of that. So what people are doing when compassion is contagious in this way, they're taking responsibility, they're caring for each other. I can say we, as human beings, have that ability to take responsibility when we see suffering and to care. That's been happening. And what that does for us as human beings, it generates an inner strength. Just as when that man on the bridge had compassion for me, I felt the confidence that I was able to be close to that which could to others be horrific. I could be close to that. So when we respond well to suffering, when we respond with compassion, we also experience a joy within us that gives us greater strength to do more. And it gives us a happiness that just ordinary everyday life without doing special deeds or heroic deeds would not bestow that, would not generate that kind of joy or that kind of faith in, in our nature, in other human beings. And it's based on a respect and understanding that we all have a certain right to happiness. It's not a right to a certain opinion. I have a right to think what I want, do what I want, say what I want. It isn't that. It, it's not even about rights. It's just, why should anyone not be able to be happy? They just want happiness. So why should we hoard happiness for ourselves? Why can't we share it? If we have strength, if we have extra strength, if we have time, if we have extra time, if we have respect, if we have the right understanding of suffering, then we would reach out and help each other. And the Dhamma helps us see that. We realize even more how unbearable that might be. And we reach out. We reach out from a place of generosity. As I mentioned before, it engenders that quality of notable generosity. And in doing that, we are considering others as dear. 
we cherish other people. So that's a practice of metta right there. And metta is the precursor for compassion. Metta is the basis. Metta is the mother. And then compassion comes from that. And from metta also comes mudita. And eventually from all these brahmaviharas comes equanimity when we're balancing these qualities. I wanted to mention the special role of compassion as a practice of radiating boundless empathy and care for others. In fact, that practice of using compassion as a vehicle in and of itself to develop the path of awakening is well documented in the scriptures. And the reason for it is because compassion has as its natural outcome the quality of harmlessness. If we feel compassion towards someone and we want to reach out and help them, and we actualize that by doing something to benefit them, then we are developing harmlessness outside of ourselves as well as within the heart. Because such acts of compassion resist and abandon and purify the heart from any proximity to something like cruelty. Or also the judging mind, well, it can be subtle, but we wouldn't be trying to help somebody that we dislike or that we have bad feelings towards, but we would be generating kindness towards them, harmlessness towards them. And these kind of qualities put cruelty, harm, hatred, all kinds of feelings of hostility at bay. So it works against those. That's, that's a process of purification. So compassion hastens us along the path of abandoning defilements. Compassion is also very closely associated with the seven factors of enlightenment. First, I wanted to read a little sutta to you about the four kinds of person, those who are helping no one, helping others but not oneself, helping oneself but not others, or helping both. I just wanted you to contemplate that. So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, the book of fours, four kinds of person. And it's number 95. There are four types of persons. One person aids himself or herself without aiding others. One person aids others without aiding oneself. One person neither aids oneself nor aids others. And one person aids oneself and also aids others. The person who neither aids himself or herself, nor aids others, is the most inferior person. 
If a person aids others without aiding him or herself, he is superior to that. If a person aids himself or herself without aiding others, that person is superior again. And if a person aids himself or herself and also aids others, that person is considered supreme to the others. The supreme person is one who aids both oneself and other beings. Does anyone have a question about that? We have the idea that it's more important to help other people than to help ourselves. The person who is taking care of himself or herself would be somebody that is purifying himself or herself. They're on a path of liberation, on a path of waking up. Because what is this helping oneself? Helping oneself is developing in Dhamma. And developing in Dhamma means abandoning defilement, practicing the Eightfold Path, developing the factors of enlightenment, and gaining insight into our true nature. Such a person is not necessarily helping others and is not necessarily teaching others or encouraging others to do that. But those who are trying to help themselves and help others are also spreading the word, like running a center and inviting people to come and share the Dhamma and letting other people know about this beautiful teaching. It's a path of purifying the mind, purifying the heart. So if we have a practice of right seeing, we're learning how to see. We're learning how to see what is true, what is real. We're not seeing from delusion. And if we do see from delusion, we're trying to improve that. We're trying to improve our eyesight not with glasses. It's not an external optical way of seeing, but it's an internal seeing. In many traditions, there have been mystics that have gone out into the desert or isolated themselves from society and spent time alone for a very long time and learned how to see deeply within their own minds. They weren't Buddhas. They could have been Pacheka Buddhas, solitary Buddha who doesn't teach. And they may have gained transcendental knowledge. So there are these paths of learning how to see and learning how to direct the mind towards what is skillful, what is wholesome, what is pure, like right intention and learning how to speak ethically, because beings that are so spiritually inclined would practice good speech, kindness, compassion. These Brahma-viharas, they're not Buddhist. They're universal qualities of goodness. What the Buddha did was not only did he perfect them, but he taught in such a systematic way that easily 
those who dedicated themselves to picking up this map of consciousness and applying it diligently, vigilantly in their own lives, people could realize their heart's liberation. I believe I met such a person many years ago who taught me about the Four Noble Truths without those truths being mentioned as the Four Noble Truths. It was suffering and non-suffering and that the world was mad. The world was a place of madness full of thorns. But from that suffering, we can learn how to practice compassion. And this is where compassion ties in directly with the Eightfold Noble Path. In fact, the Noble Eightfold Path is a direct result or a direct outcome of a deep and consistent, dedicated practice of compassion. If one uses the vehicle of compassion as a vehicle of the heart's liberation, then one would perfect harmlessness. The quality of harmlessness, which is epitomized in the Eightfold Noble Path, is a direct result of this integration of compassion into the heart. We don't have to practice compassion as something separate, like, oh, I'm going to radiate compassion today. But we can do this at all times. And we can do it intentionally. Compassion uses right intention almost like a compass. Compassion? Compass? What is the compass of compassion? It's right intention. So many of you described your right intention of having this natural, spontaneous, warm feeling towards somebody you saw that was in a state of suffering, a state of being harmed, disabled, helpless. One of the supports for compassion that we may not realize is seclusion, seclusion of mind. And this is why some people will help themselves but not help others. But the helping themselves is that practice where they use seclusion as a way to purify their minds, to develop harmlessness. And then from that, they gain more confidence, more security, more ability to bear the suffering of others without dissolving into or being debilitated by anger or sadness or pity, where the compassion degenerates into those kind of negative qualities of mind. Compassion, when it isn't mature, can easily be deflected or disintegrate in the face of defilements of the mind. But practicing one of the three modes of right intention, so renunciation, goodwill, and non-cruelty, that's compassion. And the maturing and development of compassion, by saying these kind of phrases within oneself, you can use 
compassionate mantras in the scriptures, it's Dukkha Muchantu, may you be free of suffering. So that's something else we can do if we have friends who are suffering, we can use our mental cultivation of compassion, not only to support them through their suffering, by repeating these words, may you be free of suffering, may you be free of suffering, may you be free of suffering. But we can also do that towards ourselves and we can purify the defilements by consistently teaching the mind to move outwards in that field of generous giving, offering, blessing other beings. It's so very powerful. But I just want to encourage again the possibility of using the cultivation of compassion as a vehicle for liberating the mind in conjunction with developing the seven factors of enlightenment. So you know that with the factors of enlightenment, tranquility is developed. And along with tranquility, we're purifying the mind from aversion. So the purification of mind from aversion means that we become more and more fearless. But the mind also becomes more and more tranquil. And the tranquility practices lead to non-greed. Vipassana, or insight practices, which develop wisdom, lead to non-anger, non-aversion, non-fear. So if we have non-greed and non-anger, what do we have? Those are two qualities of the anagami. Those are two defilements that the anagami overcomes. This is a very high state. You can see how compassion is indeed a vehicle towards progressing on the path of liberation of mind. And in removing the defilements in these ways, we're also developing the seven factors of enlightenment. And we're also bringing to fruit the Eightfold Noble Path. So do you have any questions? When you mention the person who helps themselves but not others, I was thinking about when you're on an airplane and they say, put on your oxygen mask first. <laughs> Sometimes when we think about compassion, it's there's an association of weakness with it. But I'd like to hear any thoughts you have around compassion for other states um, within ourselves, right? Maybe compassion if we have a negative feeling or compassion for people that we might not think of traditionally as needing compassion. Someone who has maybe wealth and power, but what are other manifestations of compassion? If people do not have wisdom, then it's a, a good opportunity to have compassion. And money is very blinding. So 
the world is running after money, fame, power, beauty, and gratification as an escape from the misery of the world and as an escape from old age, sickness, and death or impermanence because happiness is so ephemeral, worldly happiness, that people are constantly running after a new form of happiness to feel good about themselves or about their life or to just feel alive. Those are all causes and conditions for compassion. And so there's compassion for ignorance. So that's why a person who doesn't appear to be acting in compassionate ways to help others, but is working on themselves, may be thought of as compassionate because they realize how ignorant they are and they want to purify their minds and develop more wisdom so they can help other people and feel compassion for those who are ignorant, for those who commit murder, for those who commit atrocities. Karmically, they could be in real trouble. And so that bears compassion. It may not ostensibly seem like, why should I feel compassion for those people? They're bad. Those actions have heavy karmic consequences. People who are very powerful and who manipulate others, this is not the only journey. Samsara, the cosmological field, is enormous. We have no way of imagining, really, how many lives or we did live or might live. We don't know. So... This all bears compassion that if we act without taking responsibility for our actions and without being guided by sila, by virtue, then we could get ourselves in real trouble. But most people are ignorant of that and don't understand the karmic implications of their choices. So they don't use wisdom. Lack of wisdom bears compassion. There are so many ways that we can feel compassion for others. And certainly, when people are making political choices, that affect themselves and others and are not wise. Perhaps one of the most harmless things we could do is have compassion for them. That's why compassion is such a powerhouse of harmlessness. But it is the right response. It is the right response. It doesn't help to criticize. It, it may not help to argue or, or have opinions to counter them. But to have compassion and do the best we can with our own life we have the ability to do that. Hi, uh, uh, I have a question about seeing, suffering and the ability to see. I'm wondering if you've got any specific exercises which I can, when I think about some compassion for myself, I have reasonable confidence if I can get to the point of seeing the things I suffer around, I would have compassion. But it's such a 
murky, dread-filled path to the place where I could see it. So I don't know if you've got any exercises. I think we all face that. This is a practice of purification, and it is a path that's paved with patience. And the Buddha said that patience is the highest austerity, isn't it? It's biased austerity. So we don't give up. And we don't even notice the incremental gains of our practice because they're subtle. But if you think back to the way we might have responded, you might have responded 20 years ago, it would be very different than how you respond now. So we could also give ourselves some credit. Like, you know, this practice works. But we have to be very continuous, consistent, vigilant, not give up, determined, patient. Just so patient. Patient in a peaceful way. Patient in a persevering way. Bringing up an energy that it's like there's no cheerleaders saying, yeah, you're doing great. Except maybe Sakula is telling you. <laughs> <laughs> because we can be so hard on ourselves. Why do we expect miracles? This is the most difficult thing to do is to work against the habit of this ego construction. We've put it together. We have to take it apart. We have to really totally take it apart, but we kind of need it for some bits. <laughs> so it's very confusing. You're taking apart and then in other ways you have to function. So we have to be extremely discriminating. It's a fine balancing act. That's why we need times of seclusion to get back on track and develop, generate more energy for almost going out on a battlefield a battle with the kilesas and get out there and get your Excalibur sword ready to chop off the heads of Mara and then Mara comes in a different form oh no there it is again yes <laughs> but we don't give up It takes a certain stubbornness. <laughs> I probably have that. That's good. Yeah, 20 years ago, if I encountered such a situation, what I would do is polish my skills of avoidance. <laughs> <laughs> and then to acknowledge the goodness, to acknowledge it and to encourage it, in ourselves and in each other. You know, this is a very difficult practice and certainly for the monastics, it's even perhaps more challenging. We don't have people lining up to be a monastic, <laughs> but I wouldn't give it up for anything.
My question is about the ongoing challenge of developing compassion in relation to our own mind states, particularly seeing fear. Maybe we're aware of the fear, but it feels out of control. You feel in a weak position and Mara's kind of got you. How are we going to wisely cut through this using the teaching of non-self so that we will see that this feeling, this mind state is not us and the compassion will arise. So seeing the lack of compassion, seeing the lack of wisdom, how can we hold that together with the teaching of non-self? We use the tools in our toolkit and one of them is Who's afraid? Who is it that's afraid? Is there anybody there? Or is it fear of fear? The fear of fear is the trap. This is Mara. We let it go, and there'll be another moment of fear. And we do the same thing. We just keep letting go. It hurts. It's impermanent. It's suffering. And it's empty. And we let it flow. Compassion may not come up during meditation, but even outside of meditation, we can also reflect wisely in this way, letting go again and again and again. And seeing this is a pattern. This is how the ego has been constructed. We've been frightened before. The unaddressed fears of centuries, maybe lifetimes, are culminating now in a fear that is out of proportion to what's happening. But what is it really? It's a little atomic, neuronic synapse in the chemistry of the brain, of memory. And it's going to keep coming, just like a train. When you cross the railroad tracks, you have to wait patiently for the train to pass, and it just seems to go on forever. So you chant some phrases that remind us, Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Sankara Anatati. All Sankaras are impermanent. All Sankaras are empty. So just keep chanting that. And go for a walk in the forest. Let nature speak. Because wherever nature speaks loudly to us, then we can let ourselves out of the cage, even for a second. You can't hold on to fear very long when you're walking beneath the trees. That's why we live in a forest. It's so healing. Then you go back to being alone with the mind and facing the fear with non-fear, a little bit of non-fear, and with compassion. We can't will it to happen. We have to practice enough to break through the fortress of fear. But it's impermanent. And we have to trust that. I was a little confused about your discernments between um, compassion and metta. Metta was easier than compassion, but it's the opposite for me. Does it matter? When you think about it, metta is spreading 
goodwill. And you can spread metta goodwill to all beings everywhere. You may not even know them. Maybe if you knew them, you wouldn't spread goodwill to them. <laughs> but if you just in the all directions, you, if you use the directional method, then it's just to the north, the south, the east, the west, etc. So you don't have to face those beings, but you just you're trying to develop a quality in your heart of goodwill, of friendliness. Okay. But compassion arises in the face of suffering. It's very easy for the mind to degenerate into horror or fear, seeing something you don't really like. People don't normally want to go and spend their afternoon in a hospital. You might be friendly to those people, but you might not want to see their wounds or their sores. But to be with somebody who's dying and keep balance in your heart would be difficult. I know I've been there. I've done a lot of hospice work, and it took me quite a while to develop a steadiness of heart around people screaming or crying because they're about to die so, and with so much fear. In the beginning, I would be a little bit speechless. I didn't know what to say. But eventually, I learned how to speak to them and calm them down. And I began to use the practice, just stay with one breath. Or if you cry, you can't breathe and cry at the same time. When you're not accustomed to being around the suffering of other people, it can be very challenging. From that perspective, I, I said that. But if that doesn't agree with you, I, I'm fine with that. No, that's, that's helpful. I think what you've said is compassion is the response to suffering and metta is just your general goodwill. And there's a difference. Yes. Yeah, but it also becomes specific. I lived in Africa for a while, and it was such a good experience. Before I became a nun, I worked in an office that was several blocks from where I lived, and I had to walk down the street, and the kids would throw stones at me because I was white. And they used to call me names. Tubab, which in Wolof means whitey. And I found it terrifying. So I tried to avoid going down that street. Imagine if you had to spend time with people that hate you because of the way you look, or they hate you because you're old, or for whatever reason, because you're wearing a turban or because you have tattoos or whatever reason it is, somebody comes up to you and insults you. What would the mind do? in front of that insult. It would be very difficult to practice metta or karuna, but it might be possible to be polite, yeah. you know, and say, I'm sorry you feel that way. But with compassion, one would try to realize that that person is ignorant and their ignorance is causing them to act in an unskillful way. Can we forgive? instead of taking it personally. Those are difficult conditions to bring up any Brahma-viharas in. That's why we practice Brahma-vihara in more positive situations, to strengthen us for the more difficult ones.
the Buddha created this system because he was a great psychologist. He really understood human nature thoroughly. And Upeka is the most sublime of all the sublime abidings because it's totally balanced. It's not wishing for anything, for anyone. It's just saying we are the owners of our karma, heirs to our karma, born of our karma, related to our karma, abide supported by our karma. Whatever karma we do, for good or for ill of that, we shall be the heirs. That's what Upeka does. It's balanced, it's informed, it has equilibrium as its manifestation. And its function is to allow us, enable us to live with equanimity, with balance in the heart. And it's the culmination of all the Brahma-viharas. So unconditional metta has upeka in it. No matter what kind of person you meet, you would have metta for them. Unconditional compassion has that upeka in it. Unconditional upeka. It's that whatever kind of horrific situation a person is in, we have compassion for them. Why isn't forgiveness on one of the Brahmaviharas, or do you consider it tucked into one of those? I think it's pretty tucked in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but how come it's not explicit? I think forgiveness is certainly an antidote to many of the kilesas that derange the mind. Mm. If we can forgive, that's already a Brahma-vihara. It's a precursor of all the Brahma-viharas is to forgive, forgiving the conditions, 